I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I poured it out at a wardrobe door But I And welcome to another terribly wicked episode of Seeking Tumnus. We do try not to be wicked, but it's so easy to be wicked without knowing it, isn't it? My name is Laurie, and I'm joined by my fellow hosts, the ungovernable Patrick Moon. Hello. The wanton Keith Rowe. Hello. And the Frowood Bree. Howdy. This week, more than one of us picks up and moistens the pages of Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Now, Anne of Green Gables was published in 1908 and is therefore decidedly not new. But if it's new to you, let us pause for a warning. Warning, warning, take shelter. This is not a drill. If you are hearing this noise, we are about to spoil Anne of Green Gables. We will take you through the trials and tribulations of an utterly charming young lady. We will show you the bends in the road of her life and spoil exactly what lies around the corner, whether it be utterly romantic or entirely tragical. Young or old, man or woman, I urge you to pause if you've not read this book. Take it from a man in his mid-thirties who had absolutely no interest in what he assumed was an asinine chunk of girly dross. (laughs) that some classics are named so for a reason and should not be spoiled before you've had the pleasure. For those of you that have come back from pausing, let's hear page one to be read this episode by Bree. Chapter one. Mrs Rachel Lynde is surprised. Mrs Rachel Lynde lived just where the Avonlea main road dipped down into a little hollow, fringed with alders and ladies' eardrops, and traversed by a brook that had its source way back in the woods of the old Cuthbert place. It was reputed to be an intricate, headlong brook in its earlier course through those woods, with dark secrets of pool and cascade, but by the time it reached Lynn's Hollow, it was a quiet, well-conducted little stream, for not even a brook could run past Mrs Rachel Lynn's door without due regard for decency and decorum. It probably was conscious that Mrs Rachel was sitting at her window, keeping a sharp eye on everything that passed, from brooks and children up, and that if she noticed anything odd or out of place, she would never rest until she had ferreted out the whys and wherefores thereof. There are plenty of people in Avonlea and out of it who can attend closely to their neighbour's business by dint of neglecting their own. But Mrs Rachel Lynde was one of those capable creatures who can manage their own concerns and those of other folks into the bargain. She was a notable housewife. Her work was always done and well done. She ran the sewing circle, helped run the Sunday school and was the strongest prop of the Church Aid Society and Foreign Missions Auxiliary. Yet with all this, Mrs Rachel found abundant time to sit for hours at her kitchen window, knitting cotton warp quilts. She had knitted 16 of them, as Avonlea housekeepers were wont to tell in awed voices and keeping a sharp eye on the main road that crossed the hollow and wound up the steep red hill beyond. 
since Avonlea occupied a little, triangular peninsula jutting out into the Gulf of St Lawrence with water on two sides of it, anybody who went out of it or into it had to pass over that hill road and so run the unseen gauntlet of Mrs Rachel's all-seeing eye. Thank you, Bree. Yes, you're welcome. What did you uh, think, Keith? Did, uh, did that suck you in? Were you, were you intrigued or not? I have to be honest and say that that first page in particular didn't have me intrigued at all and it was kind of what I was expecting and it, it didn't really leave me wanting more. Uh, that's not, nothing to do with the reading of Brie there, but that was my experience when I, when I first read that page. What about you, Pat? Uh, yeah, I kind of agree with you, I think, Keith. I, I don't think there was anything particularly striking about it, especially compared to some of the books that we've read before where it's been hitting the ground running, essentially. You read the first one sentence, two sentences, and suddenly you're immersed in an entirely engaging universe of another kind, whereas this... I think was a little bit more of a, a scene-setting kind of uh, opening. And it, it might be typical of books of that era to some extent. What about you, Bree, I... reading it then? Did it, <laughs> did it capture your imagination? No, it didn't. Look, I agree with you all on that. We don't even get introduced to the main character until chapter two, effectively. And um, I think that it's not a common thing in books these days. Maybe there's more competition. You know, you've really got to grab somebody straight up Whereas here, it just seems that you know you've you, they're really just giving the background um, for the small village and what kind of a village it might be. It's probably if it was written today, I don't think it would get past your first editing. Yeah, it may have been more engaging had you seen those sort of things, the description of the town and whatnot through Anne's, Anne's eyes. eyes as she first mm. arrives. Mm. I think those kinds of things can work well. Those sort of forwards are from a perspective other than the the main sort of characters but they usually have to have some kind of notable contribution to the plot like they often do in fantasy books I shudder to say the word <laughs> what about you Laurie only only a teensy bit interested um right we don't meet the really interesting character which is Anne until chapter two but kind of reading the description of the character I kind of got the feeling that she might be you know, a busy busy body, and busy bodies do sometimes get their comeuppance, and I sort of wondered if it was that or whether the reason that we're watching the road is that something marvellous is on its way down it. So I was I was just a teensy bit intrigued, but, yeah, you're right. I, I mainly fall in with all of you that um, it wasn't exactly hitting the ground running, no. It gets better, though. <laughs> it does. A foreshadowing. We'll see about that. <laughs> Keith, why don't you tell us the rest of the book or give us the synopsis? Sure. So we're introduced to the rural Canadian town of Avonlea on the picturesque Prince Edward Island through the all-seeing eyes of Miss Rachel, Mrs. Rachel Lind, the town In gossip. excruciating detail. Yes. In, yeah, well, <laughs> maybe Whoa. not excruciating, but in... <laughs> Here we go. In it's on. Hold on to it. Hold on to it. <laughs> An ageing brother and sister, Matthew and Marilla, live on a farm that goes by the name of Green Gables. To help with the farm work, they decide to take on an orphan boy. However, there is an error and a thin, chatty, red-headed girl arrives instead. That girl is Anne, with an E. She has lived a hard life as an orphan, but despite this, has an unbreakable positivity aided in the most part by her remarkable imagination. 
In contrast to their initial position, Matthew and Marilla decide that they must keep Anne, even though she lacks social grace and polish. For Anne, this decision is a dream come true. The farmhouse and surrounding land feeds her overactive, romanticising consciousness. The hard-edged Marilla does all she can to reform Anne into a more conservative, well-behaved girl. As the story progresses, we follow Anne's development largely on two fronts, her farm life on Green Gables and her classroom life at the local Avonlea school. Her newly found bosom friend, Diana Barry, neatly ties the two fronts together, and after a tumultuous beginning, Anne and Diana can barely be separated. On her first day at school, the cheeky Gilbert Blythe teases her carrot-coloured hair, and after giving him a taste of her red-headed rage courtesy of a slate broken across his head, Anne swears that she will never forgive him. The great many misadventures serve as life lessons for Anne, and gaining an appreciation for education, she focuses her attention on her scholastic endeavours. The efforts of Anne and her teachers are rewarded when she tops the list of successful applicants to Queen's Teachers College. When Anne returns home to Green Gables, she can't help but notice that Marilla, and particularly Matthew, are unwell. When Matthew reads that the bank holding all of their savings has failed, he collapses and dies. The normally tear-stricken Anne at first cannot cry for her kindred spirit. In contrast, the normally steely Marilla can hardly stop crying. Eventually, Anne grieves for Matthew, and the wise words of Marilla help her come to peace with their loss. When Anne learns that Marilla's eyesight is in danger, and that she is therefore planning on selling Green Gables, she knows what she must do. For her, the decision is easy. She will forgo the scholarship and teach at a school within travelling distance, so that she can help out at the farm. To make matters better, Gilbert, who was all set to teach at Avonlea, takes a position elsewhere so that Anne can be close at hand to look after Marilla and Green Gables. This action brings about the inevitable resolution between the pair, and a strong friendship is foreshadowed. Despite the change in her plans, Anne's outlook remains ever positive. Very comprehensive. Thank you, Keith. (laughs) Perhaps a little too comprehensive. but (laughs) We would expect no less. The only thing that I, I don't think I heard in there, apologies if you mentioned it, Keith, is that she's an extremely long and excited talker. Like part of the charm of the book, I think, is the fact that she she talks incessantly and Marilla always tries to shut her up, but it never works. Um, that's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, it was very comprehensive. Good, good. <laughs> yes, comprehensive is the word. <laughs> Bree, it mm, was your choice. It was. What brought you to, why did you bring us to Anne of Green Gables? Well, I think this is one that every generation since 1908 has read. And I think that we've done a few um, more recent older books, if that makes sense, things from Mm. the 80s and 90s. And this is um, something that's much older. And this book actually sits today proudly displayed on my younger sister's bookshelf. And it was one of those ones that when we left our parents' home, there was a tussle over who gets the doll, who gets which dolls, who gets, you know, all of those books that you shared and you both loved. And she managed to wrestle um, Anne of Green Gables out from my mitts. It's got a crumpled cover, which is probably from being (laughs) read whilst hiding under our bedspreads. Or from being wrestled about oh, as you two from... fought to the death to try and take it. At the age of 21 <laughs> and 19. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's a book that we read as children and then it's a book that we reread as preteens and then it's a book that we again enjoyed as teenagers because it is about Anne's coming of age. And I guess as 
you grow up, you can kind of identify with those emotions. It's things that are experienced possibly by every, you know, girl, boy, woman, man in the world um, to, to some degree. So you do see her, her friendships, you see her navigating society and fashion, you see her navigating her studies and the way that she is so imaginative, you really sort of are drawn into her world and you become almost like one of her bosom friends and you really want to be a kindred spirit as she would, you know, call her friends. So I guess it's because I loved it through all of those ages and it's something that my sister Bronte and I had together and... <laughs> Also, besides The Sound of Music and The Mighty Ducks, Anne of Green Gables is probably the movie we watched the most as kids. We watched it over and over and over again. And I watched it again this weekend, the 1985 TV series. We'll talk about it a bit later. And I still loved it and recited parts of it, great swathes of it indeed. The Sound of Music, Anne of Green Gables and Mighty Ducks. (laughs) Yes, I did. I, I threw that Seminal one. Seminal classics. I was hoping we. One for three ain't bad. <laughs> oh, you're a Sound of Music fan, Pat, as well. <laughs> or was that Keith? I couldn't, didn't hear it once. No, that was Pat, and I don't ah. think the Sound of Music was. Uh, <laughs> Otherwise, you would have heard of The Wizard of Oz in there. Yes. <laughs> I've never actually been able to see The Sound of Music all the way through. Oh, my goodness. You should sit down with my four year old. I've never seen it. Pat, let's have a, let's have a popcorn fueled Sound of Music session. I have a better idea and it starts with quack, quack, quack. (laughs) (laughs) That's a mighty good idea, Pat. Uh. Yes, we loved it. She managed to write her name on it, what are we, 15 years ago, more quickly than I did. I think I ended up with more of the Roald Dahls. So, you know, potatoes, potatoes. Mm. I love it. What about you, Patrick? You sound a bit more dubious than I feel, so let's start with you. Uh, I am going to utilise my platform here uh, to be entirely selfish, and I'm I'm not going to tell you how I feel about it. I reading the book, I realised that unlike Anne, I don't I haven't identified precisely who my bosom friend is. I think I need a bosom friend, and uh, so I've decided to to use this moment right here to uh, determine who amongst you uh, can vie for the title of, of my bosom friend. <laughs> so, Well, I do have... For starters, I've got... No, I've got two assets. Oh. I've got two assets oh, that put me right. right out in front of everyone. <laughs> She's not the only one with generous bosoms, <laughs> Look, it... You can uh, talk assets all you like, but I've actually come up with uh, an infallible quantitative way of measuring who wins the bosom friend title, oh. the inaugural bosom friend title for 2016. Uh, and that is, I'm get, I've, I've written some notes about how I feel and some alternatives uh, about how I feel about the book. I'll present them to you and I'll, uh, I'll see who, who knows me the best <laughs> uh, based on my, my Anne of Green Gables reading. Mm. So uh, I, the, the first point that I, I thought I'd raise is about Anne, she of Green Gables fame. And I, I thought she was A, a charming, well-rounded character, B, infuriatingly precocious, C, infuriatingly daft, or D, simultaneously and infuriatingly precocious and daft. What? Oh dear, uh, Keith, do you have? A, do we answer a right stab? away? So, hmm. uh, I'm going to go with B. 
Okay, they're precocious. Yes. What about you, Laurie? Patrick, we've been friends for a long time, and I really, really want it to be A, but... Charming and well-rounded. Yep. But you've given me hints, and I feel I have to choose D, which makes me very sad, and hopefully at <laughs> once overjoyed. Okay, what, what about you, Well, Bri? look, I've sadly known you for, you know, six months, so... I'm quite comfortable with going A and hoping that you pick A. Charming and well-rounded. Charming and well-rounded. Uh, I thought uh, Anne was frustratingly incongruous. She's simultaneously gifted with this prodigious intelligence and at the same time she's inept almost to the point of tying her own shoelaces together every morning. <laughs> she's ridiculously daft and stupidly sort of precocious at the same time. I, I find her so frustrating. And she, she kind of has a saving grace, though, this undeniable charm, which I think springs from some completely indeterminate source because on the surface she has no redeeming qualities for me, but I like her. So I, I don't know what it is. If I could take it back, I probably would, but uh, but D. So so Laurie wins a, a friendship point there. <laughs> yes! And, uh, <laughs> congr congratulations, Laurie. You're in front. <laughs> Marilla, on the other hand, who takes Anne in at the beginning of the book, uh, has the personality of A, a plank of wood, <laughs> B, a tankard of tepid tobacco spit, <laughs> C, a party night in Rio, or D, a taxidermied porcupine. <laughs> uh, I'll go with you first again, Keith. Oh. Look, I don't agree with any of these, but I'm going to have to go with B. Um, so my answer to that is D, porcupine. D, a taxidermied porcupine. <laughs> uh, what about you, Laurie? Oh, I was wondering if it might be porcupine and you might be doing a, a D, D, D type answer, but I'm going to go with the spittoon. The spittoon. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I think uh, Marilla's characteristic stiffness becomes pretty much comical by the end of the book. It doesn't go anywhere. It barely falters throughout the entirety of the novel. Uh, she's stiff like a taxidermied porcupine. Oh, she's a caricature of a way. real person. <laughs> but uh, again, I think frustratingly likeable. Uh, so it, it seems to be a recurring theme, I think, with the with the characters. So this is the the uh, the final multiple choice question. Oh. I have one. I have one tie break at the end. I'm nervous. Marilla's brother Matthew. A man of few words. He also takes in Anne. Uh, he can best be described as A. Well, now, I don't know. <laughs> B. Well, now, I don't know. <laughs> C. Well, now, I don't know. Or D. Well, now, all of the above. Oh, D. Yeah. Well, what was that, Laurie? D, for sure. Yeah. I was D. right. It's a triple D frenzy. <laughs> what about you, Yeah, D, D for me. Tough D. decision. A, B, C, and D. Is that, is that an option? <laughs> uh, no, the answer is actually C. You're all wrong. <laughs> uh, I, I really liked him. I had some qualms, I think, about the denouement of his character arc, which kind of featured the demise of financial institution, which had only been foreshadowed about 1.3 pages earlier. Yeah. But otherwise, he was stolid and I think a really good foil for Anne. 
they they sort of had those polar extremes going of uh, loquaciousness and reserved strong temperament and uh, it worked well it played well he was a good character so i guess i'll move on to uh my tiebreak question uh and keith is going to have to smash this if he wants any chance of remaining in the, the bosom friend stakes so marilla's forced uh, at one stage in the book, she forces Anne to confess to losing her brooch. Uh, and it's a false confession. So this is not multiple choice. What percentage of DNA exonerations in the US involve a false confession? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, no secret what Can you've been saying. Well, that's a great question and a timely one. But um, let's go with 40%. Okay. Laurie? 62.5%. Bree. 11. 11%. Uh, it's actually 30%. So Keith, Keith is in. Oh. Keith's in there. And that, that act works out really well. It makes it a three-way tie for the Pat Bosom friend. Oh. Oh. So, Love fest. Like more that. bosom uh, than you'll know what to do with, baby. <laughs> <laughs> you'll get awarded the, uh, the crown. <laughs> so overall, I actually didn't mind the book. I think it seemed a little bit disjointed and more like a collection of short stories rather than a cohesive novel. No, novel, <laughs> novel. <laughs> and that <laughs> kind of began to grate on me uh, after the umpteenth time that Anne made some trivial mistake and pitched a fit or couldn't get what she wanted and pitched a fit or was mildly insulted by another character and pitched a five-year-long fit. It was frustrating, but I, I didn't mind it overall. High praise. What about you, Laurie? What did you think? Oh, I... I Bosom friend, Laurie. I, <laughs> I can't believe it, to be honest with you, Patrick. I was utterly, utterly charmed by the character. She... She was so adorable, and and mainly it was her sort of incessant talking and her imagination and her manner of speaking. I, I really thought she was a, a real trooper of a character. She did get into many, many awkward situations, and I don't know if all of them were her fault, but the thing that I liked about her response to those situations is she had an unfailing optimism and a really positive response in her in her way of speech and nothing really seemed to ever get her down and that and and just the yeah the charm of her her interactions with all the other characters i i thought really made the book and and i totally disagree with you about marilla i think the point of marilla is that she was a stiff backed disciplinarian, um, not violently so or anything, but the whole point of her, her character was the transition, the, the melting of her stiff back into a mellow character. I think they describe her at the end of the book. That, that was the point. Did that happen though? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, like she warmed towards Anne very quickly. I mean, in the book, they wanted a boy, they didn't get a boy, and the next day she was taking her off to... Um, send her back again. Yeah, to send her back. Essentially. And it only, only took what must have been an hour or half an hour's buggy ride to where they were going for her to witness what Matthew had is a really charming, if not, you know, I think she'd had an odd upbringing. She'd had a harsh upbringing. So she didn't necessarily have all of the refinement that they probably had themselves and expected from a, from a child. But she had a really vivacious and intelligent character to her and she very quickly warmed Marilla enough that when they 
got to her new potential host family that were strict disciplinarian sort of nightmare type potential foster parents that she couldn't she couldn't do it and that was just the beginning and it, it wasn't a total sort of unbending of her stiff back but over time I think and particularly at the end of the book she was proud of the girl that Anne had become um, she obviously loved her and I, I think that was the point of Marilla's character I totally agree with you about Matthew though I mean he he was the quiet and you sort of think maybe at the beginning he might be slow-witted because he does say well now I don't know to a lot of Anne's very long winded and uh, you know strange questions sometimes but he also solved problems occasionally like when Anne refused to apologize for the incident um, where she blew up at the, the nosy neighbor like his quiet words was the resolution and he was the only one to really notice and acknowledge the fact that all of Anne's friends later in the book had nice dresses and Marilla who had basically taken the prime role of parent and Matthew was taking a back seat on her uh, direction <laughs> that he, he wasn't meant to interfere but when he saw that all her friends were slightly different and he couldn't figure it out to begin with but then he realized that they're all wearing pretty, pretty dresses he was the one that mm. went ahead and sort of interfered a little bit and, and bought her dresses and 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 made her life even better sort of simple things like that he wasn't yeah. you think he's the slow character but he sometimes he was the one with the deeper insights. Yeah, I think he's he knows when a puffy sleeve is required. <laughs> it's very level-headed and reserved, but he is great at resolving tension in the house where both Marilla and, and Anne can be quite stubborn. He could see a resolution and lead them towards it mm. with a mm. soft hand as well, which is a talent. You can imagine that if he wasn't there, then she wouldn't have lasted five minutes in the house. She would have been sent back, you know, day one and if not day one certainly day two and if not day two certainly day three and so on and so forth so yeah I, I like the delicate balance between them to to wrap up my thoughts uh, uh, yes i i love the book i freely admit that in sections of it i wept <laughs> i was on the train and and when she almost got sent away and didn't i cried and at the end of the book when matthew died i cried i it really got to me um Spoiler. i didn't expect it yeah, I didn't expect it to. It's as I said, growing up, I probably totally ignored it because of the title alone, and probably if not for this podcast, I would never have read it. And I'm kind of glad I did. I I would not read any further, perhaps, but it was a really quaint and delightful experience. So I think I had a bit of a different read to you. What about you, Keith? I have to ask firstly, Pat. Did any tears from you? I thought there were moments that were that were quite touching. I definitely agree with that. I, I haven't taken a completely hard-hearted view to the whole thing, uh, but n I don't feel much moved by it. Uh, yeah, it was it was quaint. It was nice, and there were there were nice moments. I can definitely see that. Well, here's my take on it. Yeah, just like Anne, I think this book is best enjoyed if you're suitably willing to forgive it of its problems. And many of the problems that I had with it were born of the time in which the book was written, that sort of religious overtone and that sort of thing. I'm surprised Laurie didn't bring that up as well. I, I did forget. I, I agree. I, it was a bit thick. Go on. Yeah, I didn't have a problem with it, but it was it probably played a larger part in this story than I think it had to. Um, mm. So 
that wasn't a big issue. But the biggest issue I did have with the book was the lack of the overarching story through the middle part. And I think Pat touched on that. It did feel like a series of episodes that had been tacked together. Uh, she's continually having her misadventures. And through doing so, she is, I guess, advancing her character. But they became a bit familiar as the book went on. And nothing really revealed itself as a master plot until very late on. And um, that hurt the middle part for me. So it was just relying really on the charming nature of Anne and her ensemble of friends to keep you hooked. And it had, I guess, varying levels of success with me. The other thing I want to say is there's very little prestige in this book. And I think by that I mean, or I know by that I mean that everything that happens, it does so, it happens for a reason. There's nothing there that's designed to hide elements of the story or to deliberately mislead you. And that serves to make the book a bit predictable. Even though Matthew's death um, was barely foreshadowed, was foreshadowed only a few times, something like that was inevitable towards the end. Yeah, you saw that coming for sure. Yeah, yeah. And likewise, you know, the bank that was the ultimate catalyst for that, like like Pat said, was introduced, you know, 1.3 pages or whatever it was prior to, to the demise of the bank. It was a bit clunky the way that that came about. It almost feels like she was happily writing these stories and then thought, oh, if I if I tack on an extra 7% here, I can turn this into a novel yeah, in a way. Did. You know, that, that the story was advanced <laughs> by that 7% of the of the book. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that analysis. It's kind of like modern serial TV shows where the first couple of episodes um, lay the groundwork or the set out a plot that then through the middle part of the season gets forgotten and is returned to at the end. It was a lot like that. Uh, but overall, this was a lovely feel-good story. And I have to say with complete sincerity that for the most part, I did in fact feel good when reading it. Mm. Woo! <laughs> the ending finally introduced the gravity and cost that the earlier chapters had been able to avoid. And it was the ending that finally convinced me and won me over and made me ultimately glad, Brie, that you chose this charming book for us to read. Oh, thank you, boys. I'm actually really like, I feel myself becoming a little bit overcome with emotion. <laughs> I will give this advice. And love. <laughs> and it's from the mouth of Anne Shirley herself. It's been my experience that you can nearly always enjoy things if you make up your mind firmly that you will. Of course, <laughs> you must make it up firmly. <laughs> Fair enough. Bree? Yes. You know what I think. Bree hated it. Sure. I hated it so much. <laughs> I assume that there's no end of love for this book from you. There is There is an end to the love. Maybe I should start with that, given that you've asked it directly. And I think it's only come on this second reading, or this probably this fifth reading, but certainly this most recent reading at my age, which is it seems to tell a tale of reasonably well-off country people they were only just sort of farmers and yet they seemed to live a fairly charmed life. And I do wonder, you know, in the early 1900s what um, society was really like. Was it really all roses and ice cream at picnics and those sorts of things or was there a, a tougher edge to living in Rural. Canadian life? Yeah, that's right. I not guess. on a beautiful Prince Edward Island, surely not. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. It conjures up these amazing images of of Prince Edward Island and, you know, they just seem to go to parties and those sorts of things. And I'm sure that life was actually tougher than that. It's just not even touched upon really, other than once Anne gets away from the original farm families that she lives with prior to the orphanage, that's when 
you know, life really starts to get better. So that's my one sort of downfall. Did any of you feel yeah. that? Yeah. I don't think that bothered me so much because I, I saw it as seeing everything sort of through Anne's eyes and she was able to re- romanticise everything. And mm. I guess the most uh, despairing thoughts were ones that she came up with in her head because they were romantic. These, you know, mm. lovers that died or, you know, whatever it happened to be. I, I think, yeah, we saw everything through Anne's eyes, even though it wasn't told in that way. Uh, so mm. I, I looked at it in that way and I didn't think, you know, the historical inaccuracies that there may mm. be in there had any uh, negative effect on my reading. That's exactly what I was going to say too. She just she, she's an, an optimistic simpleton, and so if <laughs> you look, she's not a simpleton. She's not a simpleton. She's an incredibly <laughs> she, intelligent she got girl. The highest marks in the entire island for for the exams. She, she was girl genius. <laughs> I didn't and she's incredibly that. creative. To have an imagination like that, you've really you've got to be a creative and intelligent person. And I guess she needed that imagination to get her through those hard knocks that she had earlier in her life. She was, she was indeed, but she was universally uh, optimistic. And I think that's the, the lens that the entire sort of book is viewed through. And so if it, if it seems like it may be uh, overly romantic in terms of its view of rural life, then I think that's just a reflection of you know, where she is coming from. And yeah what's going through her mind. Hmm. The other one was, Pat, you said that there were sort of umpteen short stories and nothing to sort of drag them together or hold them together. For me, I felt that that worked because it is a coming-of-age story and you do discover and unlock little pieces of who Anne was and who she was developing into and you would occasionally see the story through Marilla's eyes or through Matthew's eyes and see how she evolved through that. You don't really see her evolved until the end part of the book. Those middle chapters, you could really cut them and dice them up in whatever way you see fit without changing it too much. So I think it would have been better if there was some sort of foreshadowing from that earlier point that it led up to because it did really feel like you could cut out the middle section of the book and still have it Mm -hmm. be as enjoyable as it was. Or maybe even more so for me. And I have to go back to Pat's previous comment, the way that the character advanced and sorry, the way that we were seeing things through Anne's eyes. Maybe that's that's beautifully uh, shadowed by the actual book itself where everything was optimistic up until that end point. And when Anne sort of comes of age and realises that the world isn't all about her imagination and and the best thing that she can envision, that there's a reality to everything and that is shadowed by the story when when Matthew dies. Mm, She makes practical choices after that and very mature choices. Mm. She decides not to go off to university despite the fact that she's got a scholarship that she would in fact stay nearby and teach and help look after her foster mother who may be blind soon, etc., which is which is really lovely as well. That a girl that is so wrapped up in imagination at times can And in herself, she can be vain. Right. Yes. She she see she she's actually very thoughtful and, and commits a selfless act by staying behind. I've got a great quote for her vanity. <laughs> Go on. It's from very early in the book. It's, please let me stay at Green Gables and please let me be good looking when I grow up. <laughs> <laughs> That's when she's praying to God for yes. the first time. <laughs> yeah. I'd just like to go back to the point that you were making, everyone, about it being quaint and like the whole uh, everyone in the village living this sort of idyllic life. There are hints, like at one stage a child almost dies of, what was it, croup or something? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and her 
friend. Oh, I've forgotten his name. What's the boyfriend's name? The potential Gilbert. boyfriend? Gilbert. Yeah, Gilbert Blythe. can't actually afford to go to university in the end. Um, mm. You know, they, it's not... It's not completely perfect. There are hints that the real world exists before the death of Matthew, I think. Hmm. Yeah. They're only very small hints. It's really not they a, are. a sort they of are. focus of the, the book at all. Surely you want to do some, tell us more about what you think, Bree. I like the way that it's constructed in particular. So how we view it predominantly through Anne's eyes, but how we see those snippets from Marilla and Matthew and occasionally from Rachel Lind, especially at the beginning. I like the relationship in particular between Anne and Diana. I think that that's a really important one for young women. We all have that person that we may not refer to as our bosom friend or as our kindred spirit, but we all have that person that we have this obsessive connection to in some ways and that you want to see all the time and that you you know send secret notes to in class or that you have like a secret code or um, that you really spend you really get to know intimately and you think that this is the most important relationship that you're going to have in your entire life and woe betide me if I if something push push or pulls me away from that so I really felt that particular element of the book um, worked well for I guess the young teenagers or the preteens. Mm, I'm not sure that it'd work as well for boys. Mm, I don't. Mm. I ha- can't speak obviously on that experience. <laughs> you guys don't have that sort of strong connection to one another. I think boys certainly have best friends, but I, I think they would never think of them in the same kind of rapturous affection. Yeah, not outwardly, maybe. Hmm. Well, then I think you should. It's a really nice thing. <laughs> You feel very supported and loved. <laughs> I found it pretty believable in the book as well. She was kind of the first real friend that Anne had, but even at the end when she's coming back from being away from Avonlea for quite some time, she did still have that same loving affection for her. I also quite like the love-hate, love-hate relationship that she has with Gilbert Blythe. It does. <laughs> it rings true to me. She's fiercely fiercely independent which would have been unusual back in those days and she's staunchly and determinedly stubborn about giving in to the wiles of the other girls who some of them seem a little bit sillier around I guess the boys and those sorts of things and I think that's a fantastic fantastic relationship was it you Pat that said that it got on your nerves that it went for a five-year um yeah it did go for a long time and I thought at at like it, it's fine. I don't have a problem with the characterization, but they—they, they, she was a bit of a cow, really. Yeah. She was really cruel. <laughs> I thought it was necessary for them to have that dynamic, so it was one of the reasons for her to be so fiercely studious. I think probably mm. at the time it would be, it would have been more difficult for girls to be so determined. Mm-hmm. I was going to say determinedly studious, but that's not what I mean. I, I think girls maybe were probably pushed aside a little bit, and this is one of the reasons that she was so determined and ignored everybody else. Like who, like the neighbour, the nosy neighbour said something like, "I don't think girls should study Greek and Latin and things like that." Diana Barry's mother refuses to let Diana study for the exams at Queen's as well. She says that, you know, and she also says something about, you know, keep your nose out of books and. Um, right. You know, you should be learning to run the household ready for a husband, not worrying about your studies. So those sorts of things. So having this disagreement with Gilbert is sort of like an excuse for the reason she won't let go of study. 
I thought that was necessary. And plus, maybe. he he likes the smart girl. She is the she is the smart girl. She's the interesting one. And mm. you know, I think in some ways that gives hope to all of us <laughs> who she may nerds. <laughs> she nerds. had a beautiful nose, though. Come on, she did have a beautiful nose, but she had a beautiful spirit. Her hair spirit. did turn from red to auburn though, as well. So. But she had a beautiful spirit, and she was fun and interesting and different to all of the others. And I think that that is a really great moral and I think that's where I'm going to end it on because absolutely I will read this and read this and read this again. Great. Patrick, can I just go back to you for a sec? Mm-hmm. When Patrick, uh, when, when Bree said that she was the smart girl, did I hear you go, hmm? No, that was, uh, that was me. And it, uh, it was only because, it was only because at that point in time when he was, you know, affectionately referring to her as carrots <laughs> <laughs> with a wink do. Um, that he didn't really know much of her that she was intelligent right. or not that yeah, that was that was, my, was the reason fascinated. for my uh, he was fascinated and you know it's a small town he'd probably heard about her she had been there for months by the time school went back and so on and so forth i i did like as well that later on in the book marilla shared something very personal that i hated that bit did you? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll, I'll tell the listeners. So Marilla said that when she was younger, I think it was Gilbert's father actually was originally her beau and that she got, um, they quarreled and she refused to forgive him for a time and he left and obviously married somebody else and had children and she always regretted it. And I thought that was good of her to pass that on to Anne who had been quarrelling and refusing to forgive him, even though he was doing his darndest to to be extraordinarily nice, a nice, you know, saving her life once, in fact. So I, I like that sharing because it's something that you think Marilla wouldn't share, really, some kind of personal. She's very strict and sort of upright and doesn't really talk about her feelings so much. But yeah. She, or admit her failings as well. Yeah, right. But she did share this intensely personal experience yeah. that, was good advice for Anne in the end. Yeah, probably saying I hate it was a bit um, over the top, but I, I didn't like it primarily because it was just a bit too convenient that it was his father. Right, yeah, a bit contrived. Yeah. Mm, fair enough. Small town happens. <laughs> Did anyone watch the 1985 TV series? I didn't watch the entire thing. I only managed to catch the first 14 hours of it. <laughs> <laughs> It does run for 199 minutes. It is a long one. You would have thought they could have just gone that extra minute, really. (laughs) Maybe there's a law against it. (laughs) Considered torture if it runs for 300. But it wasn't originally a film. It was a mini-series, right, which they later cobbled together into the um, movie. Yeah, they put it on... It was a television series that was made for television, presumably in, you know, weeks' worth of hour or two hourly episodes. It's quite closely guarded by the Canadian TV uh, channel, I think, because it's quite hard to find it. I own it. (laughs) Well, my sister does. Thank you, Bronte, for the loan. One of the few coveted copies that they made out of the National <laughs> Archives, which is guarded by Mounties at yes, all the times. Mounties are hunting that down as, as we speak. Well, we don't just let anyone watch Anne of Green Gables, <laughs> eh? So what did you think, Keith and or Laurie? I, I thought it kind of re- recaptured the feelings of the book quite well. And 
Although they, from what I saw, mixed the order of things up, which I hinted at being entirely possible without damaging the story. I think it was relatively accurate as well from, again, what I saw, which wasn't the entire thing. I agree. I, I agree. I think they were extraordinarily true to the book. They cut some of the book out. The book was actually quite long, so that's understandable. But I think they hit on all the main story points and when they did cut things out, like they didn't read a whole letter, for example, they just sort of cut towards the end of the letter. And I, and I thought, think it all worked really well. But the thing that really made it for me, again, surprising, <laughs> is that the lead actress was just 100% on the money. I don't think they could have cast it better if they tried. She was really adorable and really felt like Anne of Green Gables. And I wondered whether or not She'd modelled her own acting on the lead actress from The Wizard of Oz. Keith could probably comment on that. <laughs> What's her name? Judy Garland. Judy Garland. Yes, yeah, she sounded very much like Julie Garland to me. Um, yeah, yeah, Julie Garland. She's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure about The Wizard of Oz, but yeah, like she, she really sold the series. Yeah. Perfect little Anne of Green Gables. Um, really hit the execution of those long-winded soliloquies that uh, where she rambles on about nature or imagination. I, I didn't feel annoyed at all by her acting. And I felt that she that relationship between her and Matthew was really believable as well. It was quite warm and father-daughter-like and, you know, protective of each other, which I really liked. While the Matthew death scene was, like, instantaneous, like he just <laughs> sort of keeled over immediately, I... I was very much affected by it. I, in the same way that parts of the book made me teary, those same parts in the series um, made me tear up as well. So I must have really enjoyed it and was convinced by it. So Yeah, I gave it a big thumbs up. I think if you're a kid reading this book, you'd even though it's aged, you know, it's, it's an old, what was it, 70s? 80s? 80s. Uh, 1985, yeah. Right. It is old, but I think... It didn't, because probably it's a period piece, <laughs> yeah. it didn't age as badly as it could have. <laughs> but that being said, some of the costumes were amazing. By amazing, I mean ridiculous. They were, <laughs> they like, were totally, the dresses. They were totally true to the time. The flounces and the shirrings and the, the brooches at the throat and the huge puffy sleeves. The like, puffy sleeves, yeah. It's oh. all it was. You should see <laughs> these just... sleeves. You had to like walk sideways through the door to get, like the, they were so beautiful and puffy. Matt, that's a joke you've stolen from the book. Yeah. Yes, I have. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> oh. Marilla. Copyright infringement. I was they, quoting they Marilla. <laughs> they weren't beautiful. They were hideous. Like the lace right up the throat and the puffy sleeves, <laughs> they were gross. <laughs> <laughs> on, on the note of the fashion, one of the things that I noted was they would talk about wearing your skirt as long yeah. as your mother would allow. Yeah, yeah. What was going on with the, the women of the early sort of 20th century? Is, was that the that the style, like the longer the skirt, the better? I think, yeah, the longer, the more mature it was sort of implying Yeah, that's right. Mm, I see, I see. No showing of ankles. That's a bit girlish. Right. You couldn't pretend to be a woman by wearing a long dress until you were of age, I think. So here's another one for you. In 2016, I read that there is going to be a new film released called Lucy Maud Montgomery's Anne of Green Gables. Other than released in 2016, I don't know much more about it. I couldn't really find out much more other than there were a couple of quotes from the directors saying that they are going to look 
um, in more depth and detail at and the younger years and what sort of led to her being taken to Green Gables. Oh, does that take the joy out of what sort of constitutes Anne of Green Gables? Well, it'll be interesting to see. They've cast some very young actors in the roles of Anne and Diana. Like, I think they were sort of 13. I had a quick look and the woman who plays Anne of Green Gables in the television series we've been talking about was actually 17 because I guess they sort of had to age her over time. So if you're casting 13-year-olds, I can't imagine that you're going to be going right through that first book. In the 85 series, I thought the character, um, and her name escapes me at the moment, Diana. Oh, yes. Diana looked like about 10 years older than Anne. Yes. But, I mean, that works later on, I think. Maybe it was her hairstyle. Mm. That was the, it was the puff sleeves. She was wearing puff sleeves from the beginning. True. She had a very long dress, which aged her prematurely. So, <laughs> <laughs> Patrick, did you watch either? The, did you watch the TV series? No, I, I haven't seen the series. Oh, and okay. I don't want to. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> did any of you catch the English animation and the... English language animation and the Japanese anime. There were no. a couple of episodes up on on YouTube, and I enjoyed them briefly. They were they were really interesting. I thought the animation style for both was quite good, and I thought the Japanese, in particular, was a pretty faithful recreation for the bits that I saw. And the English one was great until Anne opened her mouth, and it was a really What's the word? I don't know. Inferior Anne. But the animation, and and particularly in the Japanese one, I guess the, the dialogue seemed okay. Maybe it was in Japanese <laughs> with subtitles. But, yeah. They were... I had a quick uh, look at that uh, when you were talking about it, and it, it kind of led me to to do a bit more research. And I was reading that Anne of Green Gables is sort of a, a Japanese phenomenon. Oh. Uh, it's, it's sort of wildly popular in Japan and uh, Prince Edward Island consequently is a, a huge tourist destination for people from uh, Japan as well in in sort of Anne of Green Gables pilgrim, pilgrimages one one point i wanted to bring up guys and i didn't read this until after i'd read the book and just hours before the episode had you all looked at Lucy Maud Montgomery's early life and the I tragedy have. that it was it's absolutely I've... nightmarish in very strong parallels to Anne, there was sort of tragedy and hard times in her early life. Her mother died when she was 21 months old, when Lucy Maud Montgomery was 21 months old. So stricken with grief, this is straight from Wikipedia, stricken with grief over his wife's death, Hugh John Montgomery gave custody to Montgomery's maternal grandparents, dot, 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 and she was raised by them in strict, in a strict and unforgiving manner, much like Anne was early on. And it, it kind of goes from bad to worse. She, despite having relatives nearby, much of her childhood was spent alone. Montgomery credits this time of her life, in which she created many imaginary friends and worlds to cope with her loneliness, with developing her creativity. That's really, really sad. I read somewhere, uh, similarly to you, that she actually saw herself as Anne or this was the, the 
the future that she desired for herself. And indeed, Maud Montgomery goes on to become a teacher. And that's when she actually goes to Prince Edward Island. She actually teaches at a number of the schools across the island and has a number of bows as well before she actually settles down and becomes a minister's wife. But both she and the minister are prone to um, depression and severe depression and she actually dies of an overdose in her 60s. Mm. Oh, man. Mm. That's heavy. It's a bit sort of reminiscent of, you know, things like David Copperfield, Mm. which if you want autobiographical kind of literature, I would definitely recommend in in this this vein, period autobiographical literature, which kind of canvasses some of Charles Dickens' early life experiences, I think. It it seems to be, I don't know, I think cathartic in, in some sense for authors like this to exercise some of those demons via fiction mm. and an idealised version of, of the self and the future and everything along those lines. Montgomery died in April twenty on April 24, 1942. A note was found beside her bed, reading in part, quote, I have lost my mind by spells and I do not dare think what I might do in those spells. May God forgive me and I hope everyone else will forgive me even if they cannot understand. My position is too awful to endure and nobody realises it. So it's very, very sad that she had an extremely hard childhood, a tumultuous middle life with a husband with depression and that led or enhanced or contributed to her own depression. And despite having created such a wonderfully vibrant, positive, life-filled character, she may have committed suicide. But I do like that, you know, she has been able to create something that has lasted for so long and that generations are continuing to enjoy and that we've all enjoyed to a degree, Patrick. Um, And, you know, that something beautiful can still come. How about I bring it back? (laughs) Uh, This book actually made me laugh out loud. Here, I'll read the passage, and it's uh, it's Mrs. Rachel Lynn speaking initially. I knew a girl once, went to school with her, in fact, whose hair was every mite as red as yours when she was young. But when she grew up, it darkened to a real handsome auburn. I wouldn't be a mite surprised if, if yours did too. Not a mite. Oh, Mrs. Lynde! Anne drew a long breath as she rose to her feet. You have given me hope! I just love that. It made me laugh out loud because there's so much of it. We haven't really touched on it much. There's so much of Anne's despair at having red hair throughout the book. <laughs> she also says something like, you know, it's not, it, it's hard not to be wicked when you have red yeah. hair or something, yep. <laughs> which I think she's quoting another character, but I thought it was hilarious. There's a whole bunch of redheads reading this book getting mightily offended probably. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how that plays out these days because it's entirely not PC to to um, demonise someone because of the colour of their hair. And this book does that a little. I guess it's it's never really sincere in that demonising, but it is constant. I've got a couple of other quotes about that or, or from Anne. What is Diana like? Her hair isn't red, is it? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> it's bad enough to have red hair myself, but I positively couldn't endure it in a bosom friend. That <laughs> <laughs> They are great. I, I also laughed out loud and once on the train, probably on either side of weeping on the train. But, you know, it was. It was fun, I thought. I didn't cry, actually, in this. I did come close. I had to had a few hard swallows at Matthew's death and then at oh. Marilla's revelation and Anne's decision at the end. But I didn't cry, and I don't know why, because I'm not afraid of crying and revealing that I've cried, but somehow I didn't in this. <laughs> <laughs> 
is stepping up to the plate here. <laughs> All right, let's get to the scoring with Patrick. You've actually segued into it really nicely. And now I'll go with uh, Bree's kind of usual mode of scoring. So uh, points from one to five, uh, where one, this book was the red-headed foster child that I'd send back to the asylum in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> Two, uh, as well written as a David Caruso one liner <laughs> on CSI. <laughs> yeah! Oh. Uh, three, as simple yet just as charming as a Weasley. Oh. Uh, four, as sizzling as Emma Stone cooking bacon for breakfast. <laughs> Five, as exhilarating as a ride on Serenity with what? <gasps> and Emma Stone is also. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> <laughs> What uh, do you think, Keith? Uh, I'll have to go with number four, Emma Stone um, cooking bacon, because when you said that, I can't get any other thought in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was worried that the, the rating scale might be a little bit too sort of salient. <laughs> and draw you. That's why I had to throw Emma Stone into five as well, just for the, the option. What about you, Laurie? Uh, I'm going to have to give it five. Five, five stars. Washburn and Emma Stone on Serenity. Yes, please. <laughs> that is a, a mighty high recommendation right there. Uh, I sit on the number five as well. Oh, it makes me feel bad about saying I'm, I'm probably going to give it a Weasley. <laughs> I'll give it a, give it a three. I that think. is a good rating. It doesn't necessarily have to reflect the down-the-middle score, does it? No, no. I think it was charming. There, there was a, a lot of appeal there, and I did enjoy it. Good choice, Brie. Mm. Thank you. Thanks for reading yes. it. I was very surprised and very glad that I read it. So, yes, thank you, Brie. Now I can't wait for Little Women. Mm. <laughs> Me either. Oh, I'll finally get to read about my namesake. You haven't read it? No, I haven't. Oh, when's my next classic book? Too many fantasies on the pile, Brie. <laughs> next episode, we shift back into the post-Potter era and read Patrick's pick titled A Book of Lost Thongs by Wesma Flip-Flops. <laughs> Beautiful. No? Did I get that wrong, Patrick? You were off by a vowel or two, I think. Oh. <clears throat> the Book of Lost Things by John Connolly. Thank you all for listening. We recently surpassed 1,000 listens, which I'm sure is a drop in the ocean for more popular podcasts, but it's a number of which we were immensely proud. Thank you, so much for your support and comments, whether they be to us in person or online. And if you'd like to make a suggestion for a book or tell us what you think of the show, you can reach us by email, seekingtumnus at gmail.com, on Twitter, at seekingtumnus, or on Facebook. But until next episode, if your life doesn't leave enough scope for imagination, borrow someone else's and keep reading. I'm still seeking to But aren't street parades just like um, uh, ecstasy-fueled sort of whistle-blowing efforts? You know, beep, 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 and people are... That's the yeah. suburbs of Melbourne, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs>